0: Hey, podcast listeners, a little note at the outset. We had some recording issues with this week's sermon. So what you're listening to now is a pre-recorded version of the sermon. It's a little less polished. It's uh, I'm a little less happy with it than normal, but I wanted to share it anyway for the simple reason that it's kind of integral to the series. So if you're listening along to our sermons, I wanted you to at least have a version of this sermon um, to frame the next two, really, really. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this series on work and this first instalment in it, such as it is. Okay, over to normal podcast operating. G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Andrew Cameron, the uh, Australian ethicist, um, lives in Canberra. He tells the story of his mate, he says, I know a teacher who hated his staff room's crude corrosive humour. So he began a habit with the morning paper, he'd read the opinion page on the way to work and think through his Christian response. He'd then get uh, get to the staff room first, open his paper and share his view, others would share theirs. One morning he was on playground duty instead a task despised by teachers but a colleague sidled up to join him with some surprise he asked um why are you here the colleague shrugged and mumbled the staff room it's not worth being there when you're not this month we're embarking on a series of sermons to address the oft neglected topic of work, work. And I start with a story like that because it highlights some of the complexity and some of the tensions that we feel in the arena of work. Work is not a straightforward topic for us Christians. For one, at times we can feel a bit confounded about how work's supposed to plug into our faith, into God, into Jesus. It can feel a bit like work Just happens out there through the week, separate to and distant from uh, my faith in Christ. You know, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a plumber, I'm a bus driver. How does that connect with the stuff on Sunday that's supposed to be of like cosmic importance, um, first priority, Jesus, God, and the gospel? Which, of course, is a pretty fraught topic in our culture because our culture acts like it should be the other way around. Church is the pastime, but you work well. Our choice of occupation, writes Alain de Botton, our choice of occupation is held to define our identity. The most insistent question we ask of of new acquaintances isn't where they come from or who their parents were, but what they do. The, The assumption being that the route to a meaningful existence must pass through the gate of remunerative employment. Now, well, that's for one. Then there's the workplace issues, aren't there? The corrosive staff room at school or at the hospital or the lunchroom in your workplace. We're confronted by how to live as salt and light, uh, to use that expression. For others of us, we've got a problem even before we get to any of that because we don't work. There are the unemployed, yes. Yes but plenty here live very productive lives, working lives, I'd want to say, young mums at home, active retirees, and it's not work in a sense that our culture uh, recognises in in a way that our culture honours or esteems. So how does that go together with our faith? See, pretty fast, we struggle to put work together with Jesus and hopefully this month uh, we make some inroads. To that. So let's begin. Um, this week, I'm just going to try and sketch an outline work, uh, you know, work across um, the whole of Scripture, um, I guess you'd say, beginning to end. One writer points out that the Bible begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything. Um, and so we're going to start at Genesis. So, first up, work begins with God. Please read Genesis chapter 1 with me. Genesis chapter 1. It's worth noting. I'm going to read from the start of the chapter, uh, but it's worth noting, by the end, in God's mind, we have looked at a week of work, a working week, this speaking and making and creating, arranging neatly and just so, all of that. that is work 101. That's what the Bible says about work as soon as it says anything about anything. Uh, read with me, Genesis chapter one and verse one, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and He separated light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water um, under the expanse from the water above it and it was so, God called the expanse sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear and it was so, God called the dry ground land and He gathered waters, And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day and God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing which, with which the water teams according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock over the all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground and so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature That moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and it was. So, God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Ah. You do kind of breathe this sigh of satisfaction when you land at that uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, don't you? That sigh of satisfaction. It's the, ah, Saturday. After that frantic uh, building and arranging and speaking and instructing, and he said and he separated and it was good, and there is just mortal life. There's rest. Bring on Saturday. Two things here, two things here, work ain't evil. You see that so clearly in Genesis chapter 1, work itself ain't evil. Tim Keller is bang on here when he says, in the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something that human beings were created uh, to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked. For the, fe- for the sheer joy of it, he says. Little artistic flourish there, perhaps. Work is good. But secondly, work is a gift. Did you see how God handed the baton on to us in verses 26 to 28? They, they are amazing verses. Um, in fact, they're famous verses. David Suzuki, the eco guy, do you remember him, the um, ecologist, uh, environmentalist guy? He once described this paragraph that I'm about to reread to you as I quote, the most evil paragraph ever written. The most evil paragraph ever written. Now, obviously, um, I disagree. Uh, Here is God handing on the baton to us. Verse 26, you can probably see why he says that. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed, verse 28, them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, the reason that I reckon David Suzuki has the wrong end of the stick is, yes, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the livestock and stuff. Um, yes, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. But hello, surely we've got to see these words as words of the one who, who just lovingly set this world up. Do you see what I mean? He owned, God only just created it. If you're going to read those words in context, surely it comes across as a duty of care, not a license to kill. Do you see what I mean? Compare, for example, to verse 15, which says the same thing in different words. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and take care of it. Tender care for God's good world. That is where good good work starts. That is carrying the baton. Am I saying here that Christians ought to be leading the way in uh, the care of our environment today? Actually, yes. That is what I think you could derive from this text. Leading instead of trailing along behind, as we often tend to do, That, that is what I'm saying. My point here though is a a much simpler one, it's just that we didn't invent work and your boss didn't invent work, the industrial revolution didn't invent work, it may have diced it up a little bit more, our crooked society didn't invent work, no, the thought is work is a gift from God and it is a tool for cultivating and caring for His good world, that is step one that we've got to understand for good work. Sadly though, secondly, bad work, bad workers. Uh, I'll take it as read from here, just because there's only so much that we can read in one sermon. Um, I'll take it as read here that you know the story of the fall of mankind. Um, You know, part of God's punishment on us, of course, it hurt us right where we go to work. Uh, in our workplaces, said God, for, for instance, in verse 17 of chapter 3, cursed is the ground, this, this was to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So much for cultivating the Garden of Eden. Now, a really surprising example of this um, bad work, bad workers, you know, that work in a fallen world, um, comes from one of the most enthralling books in the Old Testament. We don't read it very often because in Ecclesiastes we meet this guy and we've got to say the world is his oyster. We know him only as the teacher, the teacher, Um, and Ecclesiastes is his story of a life lived with health and with wealth and with wisdom but trying to live without God in the frame. And what he finds is... Work like that, it rings hollow, it rings empty. So, would you come across there with me to this wonderful, compelling picture um, of the teacher's life? Chapter 2 and verse 4 of Ecclesiastes. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. Uh, He's a very capable, very rich man, remember, healthy, wealthy and wise and he's uh, he's experimenting with life and trying to find... um, meaning. Uh, Verse 4, I undertook great projects, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, I made reservoirs, to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed gold and silver for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labour. But listen in, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve... Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I wonder, would you come with me for a moment into a conversation? I'd like you to imagine yourself in this conversation. You're approached by a a bright-eyed, by a very talented, uh, you know, all the prospects in the world, a a young 20-year-old or for that matter, it could be a work-weary, it doesn't really matter, it could be a work-weary, you know, burned out 40-year-old who's looking for a sea change. Anyway, whichever it is, imagine yourself in this conversation with the 20-year-old or the 40-year-old and they ask you the $64,000 question, what should I do with my life? So a 20-year-old with a career ahead A 40-year-old turning over a new leaf. What should I do with my life? How do I decide that? Here's the thing, we stumble out our answers, don't we? We, we? We'll stumble something out. Find something that makes you happy, we say. Spend your life at something that you'll actually enjoy or gives you some sense of fulfilment. Or we say, perhaps a little bit more wise to the world, we say, look, you'll never find your dream job. Give up on that dream, okay? Even a dream job becomes a day job, if you see what I mean, soon enough. A little more wise to the world. So, what you want to do is, what you need is wealth because wealth is going to open doors and that is how you will suck the marrow out of life. Get a job that pays for the good things in life. Okay, so happiness or fulfilment wealth so that you can consume more of the good things in life. And then there's the voice that says, you choose wisely here because you are what you do, realise that. So, for goodness sake, pick something respectable, won't you? Pick something with a little bit of wow about it, a little bit of zhoosh. No one wants to be asked the question, so what do you do? only to find that the questioner suddenly is shifting their glances and making their excuses while frantically looking about for someone more interesting to spend their time with. Reputation. Andrew Cameron reckons that the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he calls those answers that we've just given for what they are. In some, says Cameron, The teacher of Ecclesiastes words, uh, sorry, in some, says Cameron, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he wards off emptiness by working for fulfilment, reputation and consumption. The cocktail of fulfilment, reputation and consumption is intoxicating for a while. Did you see that in the passage Fulfillment in verse 4, I undertook, I built, I made. But reputation in verse 5, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Do it for the pleasures in life. Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold, men and women, singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. If you approach work as if God is not even there, as if your work is your main thing and you could be chasing fulfilment or consumption or reputation, it doesn't matter. If work is your main thing, it will ring hollow. Have a look at verse 17. Verse 17 with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will have control over the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my tiresome labour under the sun for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days, his work, his pain and grief, even at night his mind doesn't rest? This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let's take stock, let's take stock, oh bright-eyed 20-year-old, oh burned-out 40-year-old, whoever you are, number one, work is good. God loves work, He gave us work, He expects us to work. Um, So in a sense, whatever job you have chosen, paid or not, respectable or not, work is work and that is great under God. Number two, work isn't everything. It's not God and it's not even life. There is such a thing as rest, but more on that another time. Work isn't everything. And number three, but don't expect work to be a rose garden because there's thorns in work, like there are thorns in everything else. Don't be surprised when it hurts or loses its sheen or isn't, it becomes the day job instead of the dream job. Don't fear that you have missed your true calling when it gets tough. Work is good, it isn't everything but it's got thorns. Now, before we close, we have one more journey to take and it's a biggie because too often, work talk, work talk suffers from this real separation from the Gospel. I mean that's where we kind of began, isn't it? So in, in every other sermon, you hear me up here and I'm on about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus um, and suddenly now I'm just about Creator God and wise living and general stuff about a thorny world. You should smell a rat, you know, what gives? How, how, do, how do you connect Jesus to work? Well, for this week, we're going to make a small start on that, but you're going to have to trust me that come back the next two, uh, Sundays when I'm preaching on this topic and there'll be, there'll be much more. But for this week, a small start. The challenge in kind of theology terms, if, if this, just for some of you, you'll, may appreciate this, is how do you put God's creative agenda in the world together with, with his redemptive agenda? How do we put together God's original intention for the world? which got so off track with sin, together with His saving plan, which by definition has to cut across the direction that the world is heading in. So, for this week, in one little verse, um, I want to say this, the thought that Jesus came as a this-worldly man, as a this-worldly worker, should at least affirm the fact that God is still pleased with this worldly work. Let me spell that out. Take a look with me at this little episode in Mark's Gospel. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Just a short reading here now. Mark's Gospel in chapter 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. And just notice, please, how the people describe Jesus. I think it's significant. I think it's significant. Mark, chapter 6. And verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him, that he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his house is a prophet without honour. He couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, we all know that Jesus... The dent that Jesus made in history was not on account of verse 3. He didn't make his name, he didn't make a dent in history because of his carpentry, not ultimately, but just dwell on this. You, perhaps who work what you feel is a mundane job through the week. For the first 30 odd years of his life, here was his reputation, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? I don't know, somehow it says to me, working a nine to five, if it's good enough for my Lord, then it's good enough for me. Carpentry wasn't unsuitable, you see, it wasn't too unspiritual for the first 30 years of the Lord's life, it wasn't beneath him to invest time and to invest effort um, and years in crafting and cultivating and, you might say, ruling and subduing the tiniest little morsels of His Father's creation, should it be beneath us? Philip Jensen, he asked it like this, he said, if God came into the world, what would He be like? For the ancient Greeks, He might be a philosopher king for the ancient Romans, might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. To bring all this to a close, I think we need to be willing to see two things and carry these, please, uh, into the rest of this series that work at its worst and we have played our part in it being at its worst, has been a hopeless replacement for God in our lives. It hasn't fulfilled us, it has hollowed us out. But secondly, somehow in Jesus, God has not given up on work. Work, and we're going to see this expanded on in the weeks to come, work remains the way to spend the good life to the glory of God. Now, this may seem an odd place, perhaps, to end... Uh, But we we began with a picture of a new world, didn't we, there in Genesis chapter 1 and I'd like to leave you with an image that speaks of our hope, you know, heaven or whatever you want to call it, Uh, not in terms of rest, rest from work, we're quite used to that, but in terms of fruitful work, creative work, work that sounds very much like the way we spend our day to day, but somehow better. Somehow perfected. Listen to this picture of life that is in store for you and me in God's new creation. It comes from Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. Behold, this is God speaking, I will create new heavens and a new earth The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind but be glad and rejoice in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be In it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. Get this, verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat for as the days of a tree... So will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work, the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy On all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's close there. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, so much of our lives, so much of our week, so much even of our sense of our very selves is tied to our work. We come before you and confess that we have made it really an idol too often. It is the big thing of cosmic importance, the big thing that defines us. God, have mercy on us. Thank you that you are the working God, that work begins with you, that your work is good work. And Father, thank you that, as we'll come to see more clearly, that your work is for our salvation, ultimately. God, what a precious thing that is, for you've done all the work that's needed. And yet we pray, Father... In our lives, that we might be content, that we'd even be delighted to see that we get to work in your world. Please infuse our working lives with that delight all the more. May we endure thorns, the thorns of working life, a little differently for having seen that work as a good gift. May we endure those thorns. May we not ultimately be be held back by them. And Father, may we work to the glory of God as unto the Lord, even this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.